Welcome back to the Election Whisperer on Substack, The Cycle. I'm so excited to have you guys back. And I am talking today with somebody I'm super jazzed to talk about. We became Twitter friends over the course of the last few years, uh, you know, watching Trump destroy democracy. Um, and I found out she was writing a book. Uh, she is, by the way, Bryn Tannehill. And she is um, the author of this great book. It's brand new. It's called American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. And um, she is a graduate of the Naval Academy, uh, went to the Air Force Institute of Tech, and uh, also served as a former naval avi aviator. <laughs> um, and now she's a senior analyst at a DC think tank. So... Brent, I'm so excited to have you on the pod today to talk about this book. When you told me you were writing it, I was like, oh, thank God. Somebody ought to show more specifically not just how democracies um, can collapse, but also like specifically in the American context of how we got to where we are and where we might be headed based on recent movements. So welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be here and finally meet you virtually in person. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I say, you know, we've known each other like in the like online world, but it's never been a face to face until now. So I'm so excited to have you on. Like I said, um, you know, this is a book that I thought was very timely, which is why if you get a copy and I really recommend you should, you'll find Rachel Bittekoffer over here saying American fascism is more than a book. It's a warning a must-read for all Americans concerned with maintaining our democracy, which is a great many of us right now, but not enough. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, anyway, I was really excited when this book came out. Um, and I like I like the way it's, it's, it's a very... It's, it's a very marble-layered cake. There's a lot going on in here. You're really trying to do, I think, like a fair treatment to all these different mechanisms. And it's it can be very complex when I talk about even just one thing like realignment, it, it, it takes paragraphs to explain what the hell I'm talking about, right? So when we want to talk about the GOP's kind of you know, movement from the party of, you know, really the progressive party, right? The Republican Party was the progressive party at one point. It was always pro-business, but also had this uh, progressive wing that emerged in the Gilded Age that really pushed it. Uh, towards some democratic reforms, especially. Um, and then, of course, the Republican Party played an instrumental role in passing civil rights legislation in the 60s. And that's because there used to be this thing called liberal Republicans. Uh, you might think of them as Rockefeller Republicans, and they were proliferated the Northeast. And now <laughs> there are less of them, significantly less. Um, so, um, you know, so when, when we talk about the Republican Party of today, you identify two original sins that are, you know, a couple decades past, but push us into where this party is taking America now. You call them um, original sins. What what are these two original sins? So the original sin uh, is essentially slavery and the failure of Reconstruction that set up the Jim Crow era that established essentially America as an apartheid state that never actually dealt with the issues of how it has treated black people. And that underlying div division and animus has been the driving force behind American politics since this, before the Civil War. Uh, you can look at uh, you know, the Civil War set up for Reconstruction 
which set up for Jim Crow, which set up for um, the civil rights movement, which ended up being the division point for the South, which gave rise to the Christian right, which was formed in the 70s as a reaction to um, desegregation, busing, um, and efforts to uh, revoke the tax-exempt status of schools that excluded black kids uh, in the South, particularly religious uh, schools set up by people like Jerry Falwell. Uh, it's only been in more recent times where open racial hostility has been less socially acceptable that they've moved on to talking about other things, particularly LGBT people, feminism. Uh, but when you look at the reaction to critical race theory, that underlying racial animus and desire to never talk about race and kind of go back to a song of the South America where racism doesn't exist if we, if we don't talk about it. That's still there. That's really kind of the undergirding structure of everything uh, we see in American politics today. And it also talks about um, uh, how uh, the great migrations changed the complexion of Northern electoral politics, which moved uh, Republicans uh, to eventually embrace the Southern, Nixon's Southern strategy and reasserted one party, now the Republicans, as the party of the white South and the other party of being the party of the Northeast and the Western coast being the party of everyone else. Yeah, I always try to get people to understand, look, you know, the modern Republican Party today is made up of conservative whites, predominantly in the South, not exclusively, right? Um, and that's the same people that used to make up the segregationist Democrats, right? <laughs> yeah, and part of the, the, great, the great realignment uh, was that basically the party swapped demographics over a period of about 50, 40 or 50 years between... And are still stopped. Still, it's still in progress, right? Because it's, that was the regional swap, and that has occurred, and the ideological sort that comes with it, right? Conservatives into the Republican Party, liberals into the Democratic Party, but we still have realignment, and realignment now is occurring. All We have like basically a nationalization of Dukes of Hazard, right? So you can find Confederate people with Confederate flags in any state, the Midwest, Idaho, whatever, places that had nothing to do with the Civil War, but it's a culture thing, right? And so when we look at like 20 years down the road or 10 years further, we are going to see more and more non-college educated people aligning with the Republican Party, especially whites, right? and um, college-educated whites realigning to the left. And there's another realignment in there that's worth mentioning, and that is the rural-urban sort, right? And we talked before the show a little bit about, about education. So what we're seeing is suburbs and cities being more and more deep blue, particularly because the suburbs tend to be college-educated and getting more diverse a little bit. It's slow. There's, we're still suffering from redlining. But conversely, rural communities are hardening into becoming more and more um, red. You know, the, the, I had this funny thought, a conversation with uh, comic book uh, maven uh, Gail Simone is, well, what if Superman had been born to Clark and Marsha Kent today in, you know, uh, deep red America? It, it would have created a monster. But uh, yeah, yeah. The, monsters, Jeez, the, yeah. the monsters that we see today... <laughs> Uh, are a lot more mundane. 
Yeah, no, our, I mean, our monsters today are uh, what I call fear capitalists, right? I mean, you're either selling for profit fear to get rich monetarily or to get rich in power or to do both, right? So when you look at Lindsey Graham or someone like that, I mean, he's doing it for power predominantly. But our real, you know, our fear, our fear capitalists like Tucker Carlson and Shawnee and really the whole entire Fox News apparatus, that's about, um, you know, capitalizing on fear and threat and emotion and driving, I mean, it's, it's psychological warfare on the right side of the aisle. So uh, in your book, you talk about, um, you know, the, the famous quote, oh, you're entitled to your opinion, but not your own facts, right? And so the Republican Party endeavored to create their own fact universe. And now we're living in the, um, you know, world where this apparatus has not only been created and deployed, but has hit critical mass and essentially 50% of the country is believing things that, you know, are, they're demonstrably not true, but only if you could, I mean, even if you could show them it's not true, they have been, and I hope you'll talk about this, conditioned not to trust experts. So, um, yeah, respond to that stuff. So I had a, this, you brought me to a great point, which is yesterday somebody uh, said, well, Republicans aren't more hesitant to get vaccines than Democrats. And well, here's a poll that shows that there's about a 50 point gap, right? And they go, oh, well, I don't believe that poll. Polls were wrong in 2016. Yeah, they were wrong by about 1.5 percentage points, not 50. The odds yeah, that this yeah. poll is off by 50 <laughs> points. Well, it, it, it was the Washington Post. Well, okay, well, here's three other polls that all say roughly the same thing. A little bit different wording, but, you know, all showing 30 to 50 point gaps. Right. And it is, no, well, I don't believe I don't believe your facts. This all the all the polls are biased. Right. It's like. How do you argue with that when you try and use um, more, multiple data points and approach things the way a decent researcher would as well? OK, let's look at what data we have and see what's consistent and see what's an outlier and figure out what the consensus is and figure out what the margins are. And, you know, can we uh, fairly certainly state, well, okay, this seems to be the trend and it seems to be statistically significant. You can't have those kinds of discussions. We are functioning purely on fear and partisanship. And this is part of what I refer to in the book as the Gingrichization of the Republican Party, which is no compromise, politics is war, the only acceptable outcome is victory and crushing our enemies uh, and hearing the lamentations of the liberals, uh, to, <laughs> to uh, paraphrase Conan. Um, and Fox News and the rest of it took that kind of weaponization and just ran with it. And what we've seen today is we have settled into sort of a tribal epistemology where you're allowed to know certain things as a Republican and you're only allowed to gain knowledge from specific sources. You cannot look elsewhere. You cannot look at polls. You can't look at data. Everything but your own media ecosystem must be incredibly biased, right? Um, and that things like peer-reviewed journal articles and polls from Marist and Quinnipiac uh, and uh, YouGov and every, everyone else, they're all biased, right? And that you can't trust polls even if they're showing a 50-point gap. You know, it's we are incapable of having coherent discussions about political things anymore. And that is absolutely deadly to democracy because we've settled into two different camps. You have Democrats who are still kind of trying to pretend that this is normal and trying to function within the way our democracy used to. And you have Republicans 
who have moved into, we're going to take power any way we can, and then we're going to make the country we want, whether the rest of the country wants something like this or not. It's very much ends justify the means. Yeah, I mean, in an end, here's the beauty of that, right? Is that they are both gaslighted and gaslighting themselves and in, in, in are completely convinced that what they are doing is actually saving democracy, right? That they're the ones being forced into living some way that they don't want to live, right? And so therefore, they, what they're doing, even if it's extra legal, even if it's unethical, even if it's blatantly racist, and even when we get to the point of what happened in 2020, illegal, right? I mean, it's illegal to overthrow the duly elected uh, president. Even if that stuff is, is there, it's all because it's reactive, not proactive, right? In their world is this conservative information ecosystem we have been intentionally attacking them and doing this and cheating here and cheating there and you ask somebody oh well you know i think like the democrats cheated in 2020 by changing the rules and they didn't even get them changed through state legislatures they changed them you know you know unilaterally and made it easier for people to vote right <laughs> right so like you know i try to get people to understand that because it's so important that people understand on the other side, which is not 30% of the country, effectively because of low info, low civic engagement, the campaign um, messaging asymmetries, about 50% of this country is going to walk into the next ballot booth and they're going to punch their tickets for Republicans. And there's little that we can do about it except for to outvote them, right? And it doesn't matter what the Republican Party does. I mean, if, you know, you can't, you can't stop them at, at coup, right? <laughs> There's nothing that, that Republicans can do, no position that they can take that's too extreme, especially since they never get characterized as the extremist party. That's going to cause, you know, a, a mass rejection like we might have seen in the 80s when the electorate wasn't polarized, wasn't ideologically sorted, and so on and so forth. So we're really in a dangerous place, right? And you and your book, I mean, what, well, the thing I wanted to kind of talk about takes a little bit less from the thesis and, and, and is more like a theoretical discussion is, are we collapsing into fascism? Is it fascism or something else? Uh, what do you think? So I kind of take this as two pieces. You have the piece of what is the structure of the government? And then you have what is the structure of the movement, right? So let's look at kind of the, the movement that is Trumpism um, and the base of the GOP at this point. Uh, I looked at a bunch of different scholars, Paxton and Stanley and Umberto Eco and uh, Arendt, and tried to look at what they saw as the characteristics of fascism. And the things you kind of see is misogyny and sexual anxiety, hostility towards the working class, uh, contempt for the poor and the weak, conspiracy theories, um, uh, destruction of labor unions, uh, a, uh, the need for a central powerful leader who solves all of a nation's problems from which all political power flows. Uh, the fact that once you achieve fascism, there's obviously no other governing parties or the other party is effectively non-existent. Um, these are some of the central tenets of fascism. And one of the big ones is, uh, intense nationalism, being right-wing, uh, being intensely anti-communist, 
but one of the big ones is yearning for a mythical past which never existed but was destroyed by evil cosmopolitan urban elites when the good real rural people of the country have been so oppressed by all of this wokeism eliteness what have you right it's us versus them uh per jason stanley's being the central thesis of of, of fascism and we see all of these things that previous experts have identified as kind of core characteristics of fascism being the undergirding movement of, of Trumpism in the Republican Party. And one thing that I really want to reiterate is that fascism is not, you know, silly mustaches and panzers and land wars in Asia and bad art deco, you know, architecture. It's a political movement that is right wing populist and scapegoats and has certain elements that appeal to some very base parts of human nature to create a political movement that's unconcerned with democracy to create the kind of country that a core group of real people in the country want. Uh, then there's then there's the structure and fascism uh, fascism has changed or the favorite governmental form of fascism has changed since World War II. Whereas before it was very totalitarian, um, it's morphed into something uh, that looks like competitive authoritarianism, a term uh, created by Luke in a way in, in their 2010 book. And the central tenet of competitive authoritarianism is you, there is only one government. The ruling party can never conceivably lose. There's elections, but the outcome of the elections is already predetermined through all sorts of actions, whether it's owning the media, whether it's gerrymandering, voter suppression, uh, how you count the votes. Um, basically, the playing field of elections is tilted so heavily that elections are nothing more than an anesthetic. It's um, Lucy telling Charlie Brown that maybe he'll get to kick the football next time in four years, right? Um, it, having the elections is simply a way of staving off revolt. Um, but the elections themselves, there is zero chance that the incumbent party could lose overall. And there's still, there are the opposition party still exists, but not in meaningful enough numbers to actually stop anything that the ruling party wants to do. And that's where we're going with the Republican Party, is they're employing most of these same techniques that we see in Hungary uh, and Poland and Turkey and Russia and to a lesser extent India. Um, leveraging kind of a fascist movement to create monoparty rule permanently. And that should be really, really frightening to anyone that realizes the implications of a government where it's impossible to change anything via the ballot box. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I would, I would agree with all of that, right? Uh, and, and that, you know, these are things now that they're, they've done. It's not like they look like they might be headed this way, which is what we could have said in 2016. Now we're really talking about a party that has started well down a path, well down the hiking trail to instituting a lot of these, um, you know, precursors or necessary but not sufficient ingredients to a authoritarian uh, fascist type regime, right? So let me ask you, let me ask you this, right? I see the 22 midterms as the make it or break it, right? You either stop the GOP from controlling the voting count process, like being able to refuse to certify elections, 
it, by keeping them from majorities in both chambers it, it, at this very delicate time when the party is teetering. I mean, it's not teetering as if, as if it's like on 50-50. <laughs> it's like 90-10 falling into this fascist, like, you know, element. And the only thing, by the way, that could possibly fix this other than, like, you know, that, that we can actually see happen because, you know, media control, getting rid of Fox, you know, uh, voting rights stuff, gerrymandering, all that stuff is impossible to do, right? So the only thing that's feasible is that they could lose somehow, right? That so many people come out in this midterm that, like 2018, it, it you know, overperforms 15 points or so, its usual buy-in by the electorate, and that that overperformance disproportionately advantages Democrats, right? And and then they, they control, I mean, that they have to also offset this gerrymander pickup. The Republicans can easily gerrymander just what they need in seats. And because, as you point out in your book on these great, I think this is just such a great list of indicators, uh, and it's on page 209, if anyone's following along with the book, um, it begins on 209. Anyway, you know, I, I, they, they've made it so, they've made it so that this 22 midterm comes down to saving not only America from the GOP, but them from themselves, right? So how do you feel... Like, do you feel like the general public understands those stakes? No, I don't. Um, I think that the concept of American democracy collapsing or trying to explain competitive authoritarianism because it's lots of big words developed by Harvard and Yale academics. You know, if I'm speaking to somebody who's interested, I'm probably already preaching to the choir. Your moderates uh, are like, ah, oh, that seems like it's going too far. Um, and Republicans either deny, it's, no, it's not, it's, there's still elections, they're still free, well, but they're not fair, they don't care, or, or we're a republic, not a democracy. Uh, if we rig the game so much that, that no, nobody but us can ever win, well, that's just, that's what the founding fathers intended, which, no, that's not, but beside the point. And then you have the Tucker Carlson wing, and I have to hit on this because the book points out Hungary couple of different places as the probably the best analogy for where we're headed and I finished I put pen down uh like January 15th or so I had to include some stuff about the insurrection that I had to throw in before we went went to print um because it was so important but what we learned from the, the 2020 election was that Republicans didn't care how badly we were governed or how many people Republicans killed through negligence and incompetence due to COVID. We're, we're heading towards 700,000 people, most of whose deaths were completely uh, avoidable. And since the vaccine has become free and available to everybody over the age of 12, pretty much every death we're seeing now is more or less completely avoidable. But what we're seeing with Tucker Carlson and Rod Dreher uh, and some others going over to Hungary to worship at the altar of Victor Orban and Fidesz, as we are now openly seeing them admiring the autocrat, and we are seeing them urge that, yes, ending democracy will make us freer, that you, yes. won't, have to, you won't have to refer to transgender people by their pronouns in professional settings. You won't have to pretend like gay marriages are real. You won't have to put up with any of that politically correct stuff. You will get to be so free 
than if we just make our country like Hungary's. And it'll be much freer if really only Republicans can win because they'll protect your freedom. And isn't it a much better country to live in where uh, you won't have to put up with any of that liberal stuff? Then we're, that not, we're making stuff. you more right. free by getting rid of democracy, don't you see? And th- this is this is very newspeak. This is very Orwellian, um, even though Orwell was talking more about communism than fascism. But it's terrifying that to me, seeing the right laying the ideological groundwork for the apologetics for why it's good that we're no longer democratic anymore and that all this democratic whining after the 2024 election yep. and Republicans at the state legislature level have overturned the election, uh, that this is a good thing, that this one, this makes America better. And look how wonderful Hungary is, you know, That's and right. some of the excuses they're being, they're using, uh, you know, as well, look how safe Hungary is. Yes, and someone made the trains run on time. This doesn't make it a good form of government either or a place that most of us would want to live. Um, But in some ways, Hungary isn't the United States. And unfortunately, some of my hopes for the future uh, don't involve Democrats waking up before it's too late. It's that maybe they will wake up after it's too late. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie, right? I tell people, and I, I'm a, I shoot the, I mean, I'm a straight shooter always, right? So I tell people, look, I built Stripe, I'm built Stripe Pack, I'm deploying it as best as I can. You know, if I had the money that goes into a lot of these traditional orgs, <laughs> it would be a different story. I'm doing what I can do with the clay that I have. And I, because I, I was telling just somebody today, like, I have to know I did everything I could, right, to head into this 22 midterm and try to stop gap it but you know the fact is I'm a, I'm a trained political scientist i'm especially trained in, in political behavior and campaigns and elections and between the fundamental the campaign and electioneering asymmetries of our two parties and the gerrymandering we are we are facing a very very strong possibility of at least a GOP-controlled House. If they control the House, they can institute Trump as the Speaker because it doesn't. the person doesn't have to come from the House, doesn't have to have a House seat, okay? So it's not like Trump has to run for Matt Gaetz's seat or some other Republican and get elected and all that shit. All they has to do is make it a mandate, right? Because because that's a, it's a party, of, a cultist party. It's a party of one man, dear leader. It's a cult of personality, like North Korea and other places, right? And if Trump says, I want to be Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy is fooling himself if he thinks he's going to be the Speaker, right? And good luck stopping Trump from that because what does Trump want more than anything else? Attention. And what is he denied right now because of that media ban and the block aids on social media? Attention, right? So if he becomes Speaker of the House... They have no choice but to cover him, or at least they'll see it like that, right? And I just think that that's too tantalizing. And he's too stupid to think of that, by the way. But his advisors, you know, the Stephen Miller guy is evil but not dumb, right? Uh, Stephen Miller's got his tentacles going down into all of the nuttiest right-wing John Birch shit that exists out there, most in particular the Claremont Institute. I wonder if you're familiar with the Claremont Institute. And, uh, you know, Claremont, is very keen. Uh, they've succeeded in, in step one, seed the federal judiciary with ideologues, not just conservatives, but ideologues. 
And then step two, over time, start redefining citizenship, right? And, you know, uh, push the country towards citizenship, you know, especially the hate birthright citizenship, right? So, like, they want to get rid of that. And the way to do it, I think they think, is by this two-tiered, like, starting to create, like, a tiered version of citizenship, not unlike what we see in in Israel with Palestine, right? So um, I want to talk a little bit about Claremont Institute. Maybe you could tell people what that is, because I'm not giving any context and um, how that, what, you, what, what you're aware about there. So the, the Claremont Institute is part of the Federalist Society, and the Federalist Society has been huge on putting in uh, textualist justices uh, and dictating to the previous two Republican administrations who makes it to the federal bench. Um, the the this has been disastrous because we've seen decisions like Gill versus Whitford, and I'm drawing an absolute blank on the 2013 or 2012 decision, 2013 decision to end the enforcement uh, piece of the Voting Rights Act. Those are two of the big ones. Citizens United is bad, but it's I think it's a little bit overrated in terms of that impact. one. By the way, is uh, Shelby County versus Holder. I believe. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, it's, it, no, it's okay. Yeah, um, I mean, I do that all the time. <laughs> so yeah, I remembered Gill versus Whitford. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, good. We're seeing, yeah. we're seeing religion being given more and more power. Uh, you have Trinity Lutheran. You have Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. You have Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, the placing religion and particularly Christian varieties of religion above the law. Uh, we've got Little Sisters of Mercy. You've got things where. Uh, religiously owned businesses like Catholic hospitals don't have to follow labor laws or civil rights laws, uh, you know, just all sorts of things to place religion on a pedestal, which for those of us who are groups of people that religion doesn't like, like feminists and LGBT people, this is very, very bad. Uh, <laughs> it does not end yeah, well right. for us. Uh, but the, the thing about the Claremont Institute is they have their own uh, website and blogs and publications. And these publications and their podcasts have grown increasingly admiring of autocracy and of the notion yes. of let's just end democracy so we can run things and it will be better for America. And or they've been talking about, well, you know what? The liberals have gone too far and that fascism is the ultimate result. And they actually called it fascism. But what the, they're the way that the approach they're taking is. The fascism is justified because the left is worse. Yes. And that's there. So between Tucker. That's what that exactly. I mean, I hate to interrupt, Bryn, but that's like exactly what I was talking about. Like the way that they have conditioned this so that they can get 75. I mean, we'll hit 90 by 22 of Republicans to say, no, Joe Biden was there was election fraud and joe biden's not legit and the insurrection was not an insurrection right like that that stuff there is about conditioning the public to accept the next move down the slide so as you just talked about like claremont is pushing all this paper and pod and, and material out and it's about and it's going to get picked up by all these you know the right-wing media fear capitalist nuts right but the goal of that all is to condition conservative Americans into accepting that they will not live in a democracy, at least not one that, I think their version, they would argue, oh, 
I mean, not maybe not out loud, and maybe they wouldn't even admit it to themselves, but like really what's going on is, they're like, okay, democracy as it was originally constructed, because keep in mind this connection to the Federalist Society and originalism and founders' intent and whatever, right? Well, founders' intent was for white male property owners to be making these democratic decisions, right? They, it's, the, it's the expanded suffrage part of democracy that they intend to dismantle so that they can still pretend and tell their audience they're living in a democracy. It's just that they are, they are constructing a predetermined electorate who, in their opinion, are the only people that really have the right to weigh in. That's, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that I point out in my book uh, is that really technically America's only been a democracy for since about 1965 when the Voting Rights Act passed and a lot of the Jim Crow era laws that made it difficult to impossible for black people to vote went away uh, or that, you know, were able to be stomped out by the federal government. But with uh, Shelby versus Holder, the enforcement mechanisms went away. So... Uh, they are the Voting Rights Act is fairly toothless at this point, um, and they would also love to make the Civil Rights Act toothless as well uh, via the use of religious freedom exemptions to virtually anything. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, the Supreme Court's ready to overturn Newman v. Piggy Park Industries from 1968, but they're going to find a way to weaken it if they can, you know. And I'm just looking forward to our future and. We're headed for all kinds of badness. And I just wrote for Dame Magazine um, about how, you know, this this crazed, out of touch, epistemology, you know, uh, you know, epistemologically challenged base is going to make life a living hell in schools with Delta variant this fall. But the thing that I can't quite predict is how the American public is going to react in December 2020, if you had state legislatures that just overturned the election, refused to send electors, right? What's going to happen? Is the American public going to blow up? Are they going to hold their breath until the Supreme Court rules on it? Um, and really, at that point, really, there's a very limited number of things that can happen from there. Because as an analyst, I try to war game things. I was, well, what happens if we go down this path? What if we go down this path? What if we go down this yes, path? Yes, yes. And the once Republicans uh, actually go ahead and steal a presidential election, which is which is on the fucking agenda, like just anybody listening to this podcast. And and before you think I'm a cook, a kook, let me tell you, like I was telling people February, March, April, May of 2020. They are, they're visiting these states, these state legislatures, they're initiating these lawsuits. Their goal is to not certify any election they don't win, right? And they're, he's going to try to pull a coup. And I got, I mean, many people were like, you're nuts. I mean, that's just never going to happen in America. <laughs> I was like, dude, it's one thing to be a QAnon conspiracy nut job where you have to use third degree separation to come to your logic, right? But the shit that they're doing, they're doing right in front of us. Anybody could see it. And all of the smart analysts are seeing it, right? Yeah. And so, like, when you say the future is bleak and what will we do, to, to me, like, okay, I don't think people will, I think the broader public, as you just pointed out, won't realize shit has hit the fan until they refuse to certify 
these elections in 2024, and they have put all of the mechanics in place in the key states that they can to do that already, right? <laughs> like through these voter laws. So I'm going to tell you how you might be right. And you, you'll probably love hearing that. Uh, hopefully you're I don't want to be right about this, though, you know? Well, no, write about something you'd like to be right about. If the 2020 election isn't particularly close, if Biden wins lots of swing states by a much wider margin, we're talking Pennsylvania-level margins, right? We're talking two percentage points, roughly. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Nothing less than one, for sure, right? Um, yeah. If the election overall is more of a blowout, it gets a little bit harder for Republican legislators and legislatures and governors with a brain to overturn the election. Why? Because there's always a fear that it explodes, right? That's, I mean, I'm, this is, right. I'm not advocating it, but I'm saying what happens? Well, one path is they're afraid things explode and stuff burns, right? Right. Um, that, the, you know, the defenestration begins, right? That We saw right. a Republican insurrection. What does a liberal insurrection look like, right? Um, right. And that they, that pulls them back a little bit. Uh, there's also the possibility that a wide enough margin makes the Supreme Court go, yeah, textually they can do what they're doing, but we will burn the country to the ground and potentially induce secession if we go along with this attempt at stealing, right? Yeah, and I got to tell you, aside from Alito and Thomas, I actually think the other conservative justices want no part of that. I think they Kavanaugh don't, would yeah. happily see the country burn. Do you think? Yeah, I think Kavanaugh, Alito, and Thomas would happily watch the country burn yeah. to uphold I mean, our I, textualist vision. And Kavanaugh, um, he's a vengeful enough individual that I think he would do it just to, uh, I think he's got motivation for both ideologically and from the perspective. See, of the I think a lot of the, I think DeSantis is happy to burn shit down. And I think it's because they understand if there is violence in the streets, like what they're doing is moving shit within the military. They're really propagating like propaganda to these white enlisted military people. And what they're trying and what they're doing is they're getting them to distrust the chain of command. So right? what the military is going to do is they're going to go along with whatever the Supreme Court says. They're going to let the Supreme Court sort it out, and they're going, if if it's a blatant steal, but the Supreme Court signs off on it as well, yeah, it's disgusting and wrong, but textually they can do it, right? Well, yeah, yeah. The, the military yep. will, will follow the Supreme Court's lead. Um, the thing that I cannot predict is if that occurs, if we reach a point where we are no longer democracy, where we are a competitive autocracy... What happens in blue states, right? The states, do, do, they, do they continue to recognize a federal government that has been, that is no longer, that no longer represents them and no longer will ever represent them, no matter how the people of the country vote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and here's the problem. It? Will they realize Yeah, but here's the problem, Bryn, is that like their shit is, is um, geographically continuous, okay? Our shit is divided in these two very bifurcated things, right? So, like, even if, like, they survive, I mean, so even if it breaks down like that, it's hard for me to envision where we would come out on top because of that 
divide problem. You know what I mean? And they're better armed, too. They're much better fucking armed and willing to kill people. We're not even willing to fucking fund a war machine to go after them. So, you know? So I think that there's something that that we're missing here, and it's polling data that I've been paying attention to. And we've had two sets of polls, one back in February timeframe and one from May, June. And it asked people of different parties in different regions how they would feel about secession. Right. And the answer that I got roughly was that more and more people are getting comfortable with this possibility. And what I'm seeing is that the Western states, Democrats are increasingly ready to leave. And in Southern states, they're increasingly ready to leave, that they're increasingly open to it. And... We could reach a point where if states said, you know what, we're done, that the reaction wouldn't be kill them to bring them back the way it was in the Civil War. It would be fine, good riddance. We don't want your queers and feminists and liberal universities anyway. It's it's going to be really, really ugly. But here's the thing is that when you look at other countries that have sunk into competitive authoritarianism, the vast majority have gone with barely a whimper. That's right. And that's what will happen here. Protests don't matter much, right? There's this great quote I found by uh, Georgian dictator Edward Shevardnadze uh, that's, to paraphrase about protesters, is, well, they'll make noise for a few weeks after an election that's a fraud, but eventually they'll get bored and go home and everything will go back to normal. And that's what we saw in Belarus. We've never seen... People ask me, What's the blueprint for working our way out of competitive autocracy, which is a form of government that's emerged since the end of the Cold War? And the answer is, I don't know. No one's actually done it. (laughs) Yeah, there's, you don't want to fucking get there, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the point, right? Like, there, yeah. We saw one example in Indonesia where the uh, out of power party managed to come back briefly and then a year later, the courts that had been put in place by the previous regime went ahead and reversed an election and handed it back to the dominant party. That's like, not exactly the dominant party, right. but the but the autocratic party. It's a lot easier to keep a country from going into authoritarianism than it is to get it back out. <laughs> right? Not that either of those tasks are easy, but you know, I often refer to Strike Pack to my effort to build this like SpaceX version of our messaging and, and electioneering effort as a war machine, right? And you know, the reason is the other side is fighting a war against us right now. It's a it's a it's a um, it's, it's Cold War, right? It's not uh, weapons, <laughs> not directly anyway, uh, but it's thoughts and and laws and power and propaganda and sabotage and all these other elements and they they are doing that to us whether we want to accept it and respond in like is a a different question because the war is being waged upon us whether or not we choose to acknowledge it and deal with it in reality right and it's very tough because the people who are tasked with staving off this authoritarian slide are the ones that are least predisposed to be able to A, accept it coming, and B, do things that will mitigate it effectively. So so one of the, thi- one of the things, and this was a, a quote that I found 
uh, was that life in authoritarian regimes and, or competitive autocracies is mostly boring and stable for the vast majority of people. For your average person looking at what things look like if we lose our democracy, they don't really see how it will impact them directly. Indirectly, you end up with a government that treats people as disposable, that takes the attitude, he who, he who cannot work shall not eat, um, that, takes the, that goes after queers and Muslims and immigrants, and as long as you're not one of them, then you're, you're probably okay. Um, or liberals, or liberals, right? I, they still, no, that's the thing, is that we, when we look at competitive autocracies, they don't care if you're a political dissident. As long as you're generating money for the GDP, you can make noise and pound your tiny little fists ineffectually at a government you can't change, and they don't care, right? You, that's one of the central things about competitive autocracy is it's not totalitarian. You don't need gulags and secret police and dragging people off in the dead of night to God only knows where out of their beds to get your aims because that's inefficient. As long as, there's, as long as they are still generating GDP for you and your country, then keep them there. As long as they can't hurt the regime, why? Why do you care? And that's, that's actually an efficiency that competitive authoritarianism or a competitive authoritarianism has over more traditional totalitarianism. Which you could argue, like the you know the economic libertarians will look at it and be like, oh, good, it's efficiency, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, here's here's something I would add to that, right? All right, so you're right; it, it goes in a whimper. For most people, they won't even notice a change until years down the line, right? Um, I, I always tell people the most dangerous thing, the, like the one of the fuels of, of, of how we're here is that China demonstrated to the world, you don't need freedom for capitalism, okay? You don't need it. Uh, in fact, <laughs> the less freedom, political, like stuff like that, like the better, right? So like China has basically doped, like, uh, you know, doped as in the drug, their billion person population into consumer good, you know, um, happiness, right? So like they've got espresso machines that talk back to them and can be wired to their house. And like, as long as the consumer goods are flowing and there's middle class um, mobility and da, 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 like who, you know, go have it, have at it, you know? <laughs> and we're seeing, we're going to see this, I think, play out pretty effectively in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is Asia's financial Wall Street, basically. It's the most important hub in Asia. And it's always been protected as a separate state in, term of, in terms of democracy from the Chinese ruling party until the last couple of years, because the assumption was if you come into Hong Kong with Chinese authoritarianism, you'll kill the capitalist like center, right? And the fact that they're willing now to do it, a couple, you know, a couple years in progress now with the umbrella protests and they came and they did it. Now they're, you know, jailing um, newspaper people and, and really coming after democratic freedom. It, it told me that they figured it out. Like, oh shit, we don't need freedom. We just need happy consumers. <laughs> like fake freedom is good enough. And that's, that's exactly it. Is that, for the, you know, in China, it doesn't matter that, that they have zero freedom. 
No, as long as as long as that you have some sort of middle class. Now, one of the things that I'm going to point out about where the Republican Party wants to go is that, and this is one of the chapters in the book, is wealth inequality is corrosive to democracy and it builds dissent. That the more desperately wretched, unhappy people who can't better their lives um, in a pluralistic society, that's extremely bad. That builds towards conflagration, right? And it without social mobility, people lack hope. So you have two possibilities of, you know, do we sink into kind of a rush, you know, hopeless gray Russian apathy of, you know, today's an average day, you know, worse than yesterday, better than tomorrow. Right, um, right. Do we, does it explode? And uh, we, we don't know. But one of the things that, that hidden prices of competitive authoritarianism is the corruption that creates greater wealth inequality. And a great example of this is Russia's oligarchs, right? Um, that as long as Putin keeps them extremely wealthy and they stay out of politics, everybody's happy. And the corruption and the graft, as long as some of that's going back to Putin, making him one of the world's richest men, it's all good. And we saw that kind of kleptocracy occurring in the Trump administration with absolutely no regard for ethics, but is very much a transactional approach of, you know, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, everybody gets rich. And if everybody else gets poor, who cares? Because we're the ones in power. Right. And That's to this day, to this day, no rule of law intercession in any of that. Right. Uh, because, you know, I mean, at the very least, you could look at the pardons. Right. The pardons were used to reward donors, to reward business people, partners, people in the orbit. And there has, there's never going to be probably any accountability for that stuff, right? Yeah. That's very, very dangerous. And, and so I've written two articles for Dame Magazine, which is kind of my go-to, uh, one of which was called The Chaos to Come, written back in August of last year that predicted the period after the election was going to be, uh, can I swear? <laughs> or no? Yes. Yeah. Well, if you noticed, I, I mean, would it be a Rachel Bittikoff or podcast if there was not some uh, so, cursing like a sailor? I predicted <laughs> that the time after the election was going to be a shit show, regardless yeah. of how things went. It was, it was going to be a, sh it was going to be ugly. The other thing that I noted is one about how we can't let Nixon or Trump go out like Nixon, which is basically Nixon got off scot free and some yes. of his administration got hammered, right, and went to jail, and many of them got pardoned by by Ford or others. Uh, and ended up back in politics again, like Roger Stone and uh, G. Gordon Liddy. But the point of that is, is that we're failing. We're failing to pass democratic reform. We're failing to hold the Trump administration accountable. That from the Republican perspective, there's zero uh, downside to enriching yourself, right, illegally or in ways that are unethical. Uh, and there's zero downside to stealing the election or no doubt. I mean, Matt Gates is like, he, I mean, that's his entire legal strategy right now is like, okay, drag this out. I'll be, eventually I'm going to probably be commit, um, convicted of the, these federal taking a minor across state lines stuff. Right. And his hope is that like, that will take a long time to litigate. And by then they'll get rid of Biden and put in Trump again and, or somebody like Trump and he'll just get pardoned. So the, the, other, the other thing that separates us from Hungary 
and other places is that we do actually have a pluralistic majority, right? Um, and that creating disparities where you have one class of people um, lives better, plays by different rules, is unaccountable, and there's rules for everyone else, doesn't go over well, particularly when you have no method of voting them out. And that's going to create friction as well. So, and some of the other things that Republicans intend to do, like evict all the dreamers, they would love to do that. Yes. Um, they would love to end And we, we have never made that a, a, a case, never made that an ad. You know what I mean? And the, the some of the things that they intend to do are wildly unpopular, you know, and what happens when these wildly unpopular things start impacting lots of people and not just a select few, like like trans people or uh, Muslim travelers from no doubt, other countries. No um, this, and I don't know the answer to these questions, but the Republican Party seems intent on plowing forward with whatever base support they have. They're not interested in attracting any more support. They're going to do it just with their base. And they're going to shape the electorate to their specifications. Right. right. They're going to choose their voters rather than the voters choosing their politicians. And the the question I can't answer is, is how is the American public going to react to outrages? And unfortunately, if other countries are any example, generally they shut up and take it or they protest and nothing happens. Um, and it's going to take something drastic for the dynamics to change once we have, once our elections no longer matter. Yeah, and let's leave our listeners with this happy, you know, <laughs> hypothesis, right? I mean, think about being Canada, the UK, Spain, France, Britain, whatever, all the NATO countries, and you're in a, you're looking at a post-democratic neo-fascist, authoritarian, American government, military superpower with all of the things that, that comes with that. I mean, that's, that is some scary shit. And this is a conversation for another day. But like, if I had the ear right now, of some of these people that are within the right wing orbit, but they're not, you know, they're military or whatever, I would say, look, don't you see where this is headed? Let's say ABCD happens. And we have this ruling autocracy in America and shit's, you know, consumer goods are still getting made and people are still have stock markets. So it's not going to be a big bang. But let's say we get 20, 30 years down the road. Are we going to be allied with NATO or are we going to be allied with Russia and China? I mean, that's I some scary know, shit. But I can say uh, that looking at our national security plans that involve working with allies going forward. I worry that with future administrations, and particularly a second Trump administration, most of our national security plans for global security against near-peer adversaries become impossible. Yep, exactly, because we won't have those allies, dude. Like, or at least we will not have them the way we do right now. And with that happy thought, Cycle subscribers, why don't you go off to the kitchen, pour yourselves a couple shots of bourbon, Maybe uh, smoke a joint or something, right? Because this has been a pretty depressing conversation, but so, so important to have. And it's been such a delight to me to have you on, Bryn. I'm so excited to, to shoot the shit with you and be able to share our convo with the world. And I'm so glad you did the research, the great book. I really urge everybody 
to buy this book, read this book. It's a long read, okay? I mean, this is something I could write, right? <laughs> like, I, I mean, the book, it, the book it reminded me the most of, and I'm not trying to flatter myself at all, is my own book on the presidential election, and that's because you were so committed to trying to make sure you capture all the elements, and because of that, it, you know, a lot of detail and nuance is needed, and it's just so well written, It's but it's not hard to read, and it is so important that people do um, so that they can understand all these different, you know, seemingly inter or unconnected things are actually interconnected. And worse, many of them are set into motion strategic plans laid against democracy in the name of the pursuit of power on the right. And, and we're in a really precarious situation. So thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.